BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is lovingly brought to you by my friends at Healthy Nest. If you go to www.healthynesting.com, you will find the most incredible diapers, wipes, and organic house cleaning, and it is made with our earth and our children in mind. So I'm very happy to have them as sponsors. Today, I'm here with Professor Mark Blumberg, who's a distinguished professor of psychology and the chair of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Iowa. Now, of course, we were just saying this is a very strange time for the chair of a department of, a department of psychology, um, given how stressful times are, and also someone who's been studying with live subjects. So everything has has kind of come to a screeching halt. Um, But we're going to talk about your work, thinking about how babies um, grow and what's going on with them while they sleep. And so I would love to hear about your research and how you came to understand or what we do understand about what's going on inside of that sleeping baby. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful topic to study. Very pleasurable for me. I've been doing it now for over 20 years, having studied other sorts of things in development before that. But it, it, may, be, it may surprise you, it may surprise your listeners to know that even though we've known for millennia, uh, just by observing, that we sleep most when we're young. Um, there's remarkably little research comparatively going on in, uh, in, in baby sleep, in any kind of infant sleep. So we know, the nuts and bolts wise, we know relatively little about what's going on you know, in the infant body, in the infant brain during sleep. We've learned, most of what we've learned, we've learned in the last roughly 15 years or so, which is crazy compared to like, I mean, like we've learned more in the last 15 years than we've learned in the previous name your time. Right. And um, so it's been a very exciting time to be a part uh, of this of this explosion, really, of research into, into infant sleep. So what would you say the biggest breakthroughs have been? Well, it's, it, it's a little bit hard to say what, you know, what constitutes a breakthrough when you're really just starting. So, I mean, mm-hmm. so much of what we're trying to do is just to, is to describe sleep. I mean, when I first entered uh, this field, I entered it 
sort of with guns blazing because there was there was there were some people, friends, colleagues, who were arguing that infant sleep doesn't satisfy the adult-centered vision of what sleep is, the definitions. And so therefore it wasn't really sleep. Right? So that that was a funny way. So I I I, I having studied behavior and come out of a strong behavioral tradition of, of just watching the behavior and seeing it. It certainly looks like sleep. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then that led us to start, you know, getting the actual um, electrophysiological data, you know, studying muscle activity, studying eventually brain activity and showing that, yes, indeed, this is, these are, it, it satisfies all the hallmarks of what we would expect uh, sleep to, to satisfy. It's not identical to adult sleep, but as so often happens, as you probably know, in developmental research, is that some researchers will take definitions from adults and apply them apply inappropriately it. to infants. Right. When, and when the, when the puzzle pieces don't fit, they just define something out of existence. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's what was sort of what we were dealing with initially. But, you know, behaviorally, it's all very clear. Um, anybody who's watched an infant sleep or an infant animal sleep, or any animal sleep for that matter, when you when you see an animal go to sleep, you'll see that muscle relaxation that happens. The limbs gradually, you know, droop to the to the ground. Uh, I used to love watching my dog sleep, and you know, mm-hmm. she was my last dog was a just a wonderful sleeper. And and one of the things that she did that I happen to study is this this twitching of the limbs and the face and the eyes that you see during REM sleep. And uh, and infant animals do that a lot. In fact, infant animals twitch more than any other time in our lives. We do it when we're when we're young. And these twitches are, um, have become quite fascinating to me. So the breakthrough uh, for us methodologically was figuring out how to record brain activity in very young animals, uh, rats mostly, while they are sleeping, and to be able to do it in a way where we could get, where we could relate the brain activity to the behaviors that we were seeing. And, and that methodological breakthrough was what made it possible for us to get the first glimpses as to what the sleeping brain actually looks like. And that was a shocker. And, and how did you do that? And also, can you just quickly touch on the similarities that allow you to um, learn about humans when you're studying other animals, such as rats? By the way, I'm so not a, I, like, it's so hard for me to say that because of course there's so many in rat studies, rat pup studies that have been so important to developmental science, mm-hmm. but it's still, um, difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so if you, if you take, so now that I've, I've been studying, you know, human infants for the last four years or so, and being able to directly compare their behavior to, mm. to rat, to rat pups. And so first, when you're born as a newborn rat, they're born in a very immature state. So they're, they're in a stage of development that's roughly akin to the last third trimester, the third trimester of human infants. Wow. So you could think about them as an externalized fetus, but you know they're born that way. And what you see is, is in a rat pup, is they will cycle in and out of sleep every fifteen to twenty seconds. It's quite amazing to watch. Uh, they will kick their limbs like they're awake, and they'll look like they'll look like an awake animal, and then they will they'll just go to sleep, and it happens very fast within seconds. Their muscle tone relaxes, just like you you know I was talking about earlier. And then you'll start to see all these twitches of the of the digits. There, there's the twitches are so fast and so sporadic and and almost popcorn like that it looks like a seizure. And in fact, many parents uh, confuse normal sleep and doctors, for that matter, have often confused 
the sleeping, you know, the sleep the behaviors that occurred during REM sleep with seizure activity. And then I, I get, I get, I get emails from parents. Wow. Um, not so, not so rarely basically saying, I think my child has epilepsy. Will you look at a video? And, you know, sometimes the child has, a, has can be having some developmental problems, but most of the time it's just normal sleep. And um, so, like I said, they're, they're cycling in and out every 15 to 20 seconds. And the twitches are very obvious. Human infants are different. They're cycling out every few minutes, you know, between sleep and wake. And the twitches are a little bit less dramatic. But if you take a video of a human infant and you speed it up, five or 10 times, which is really easy to do now with an iPhone or any other kind of a phone. You can just do it, you know, anytime you want to. If you just play it at, at a fast speed, the humans right. look just like, the, just like the rats. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. And when I first, and I love this because it turns out that one reason why twitching has not been studied a lot in humans, I believe, is because it's, it, they're kind of, it's not as, it's just not as exciting to watch because it's just happening slower mm-hmm. and our attention, our attention drifts because we're adults and we want to see lots of interesting things, but it's sort of hidden because the movements just are not as punctate. They're not as syncopated as, as what you see in an infant rat, but speed up that video, boom, it pops out. And then you just see this whole world of, of movement that was hidden to you because uh, you got a little bored watching, watching <laughs> your baby sleep. <laughs> that's so crazy so then so now what do we think is happening so the 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 crazy thing that we started to see when we studied brain activity in, in, in rats we can't do the work that we're doing in humans mm-hmm. because we're recording from parts of the brain that are not on the surface we can't do an eeg study for example well we do things that are like eeg but we're also studying the brain stem and we're recording all throughout the brain so it's never been done before wow and um and so what we started to see was that whenever the infants that we're recording for parts of the brain that are that are listening, if you will, to the to the limbs, to the sensory input that's coming from a limb or from another part of the body, and we're also looking at parts of the brain that are producing the movements. And so we we were able to trace the activity from where it starts to the twitching limb, back up through the spinal cord, and then all the way up through the the base of the brain, through the what's called the midbrain, the thalamus, and the cortex the parts of the higher, the so-called higher parts of the brain that are processing this information. And whatever we recorded from these areas, we found, much to our surprise, that when the brain was active, it was when the, when the infants were twitching. These are rats now again. And when the rats woke up and vigorously moved their limbs as they will do when they're awake, we saw very little activity. Wow. Which is the exact opposite of what you'd expect. I mean, we expect there to be brain activity during sleep, but we don't expect there to be more brain activity during sleep than during wake. That's exactly what we saw. And is that because of the, the massive amounts of growth that are occurring during sleep? I mean, is that the implication or is that just way too far-fetched? No, I don't think that's far-fetched. I mean, so we've had, we've scratched our heads and tried to figure out what this means. First, we think that twitches are not just random products of, the, of dreaming, which mm-hmm. is what people have thought for forever. But, but we know that I know that's not the case. I mean, so that was the first one of the first challenges we had was to show that these are not byproducts of dreams, mm. because we know they're not being produced by the cerebral cortex. They're being produced in the very, in a, you know, farther down in the brainstem. So that's the first piece of information that's important. And so it's being produced by a part of the brain that's in the process of wiring things up. But then when also you get that movement activity that goes back to sensory feedback, it's going through the it's cascading through the entire sensory system. Uh, sensory motor system of the of the infant rat, and that's what's being activated, and and so what we thought was that 
there are things about twitching that make it very ideally suited to wiring up a system because the twitches themselves are very discreet. They're produced when the, when the very little else is going on. So there's a lot of signal, and not a lot of noise. And that's important when you're trying to develop precise relationships in the brain and the body. And so we thought that maybe this is what was going on is that you're producing this activity very discreetly, getting really discreet information back. And that's allowing you to make all the wiring up sorts of decisions in the brain that have to be done in order to gain ultimately fine control over your limbs and the rest of your body. And so then what, why though was when the animals woke up, why was the, the activity decreasing? Well, we traced that and we found out that that's in fact, that it is true that, that the activity is getting blocked before it can get into the brain. And then about two weeks after birth in rats, that blockade disappears. And now all of a sudden that wake activity is getting into the brain. So it's as if the developing infant, again, thinking here about the third trimester in humans, roughly, it's as if the system is saying, I only want to talk about twitches. You know, I only want to get information about twitches. I'm still building the system. I'm still trying to figure out how things are wired up, I'm still wiring things up. I don't want to hear about, I don't want to get a lot of noise from those wake movements because they're too loud and too boisterous and too uncoordinated and all that kind of thing, or too, too, um, too um, synchronized. And so that's, that is our sort of working idea now about what's going on and why wake activity does not get into the brain very early in development. Hey everybody, Gabby Reese here. Please join me for my show where we're going to be talking about all things self-care. And I don't mean just eating and exercise. I'm talking stress, marriage, relationships, parenting, business, transitions. How do we figure out a way to be our best selves each and every day? So whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, please join me. If you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. So is wake activity almost too much for the brain so it shuts it out? There are, it turns out, there are, there are specific systems that are temporarily in place that block that feedback from coming into the brain, mostly block it from coming back. And we've seen this now in multiple ways and multiple systems where Twitches just get in very readily and they're amplified and they make their way through the whole brain and the wake activity just does, does not. And it's a, I don't want to use the word purposeful, but it is a, it's a feature of the developing system that it appears to, to uh, blockade that input coming during, uh, during wakefulness. So, and it's a feature that's obviously protecting, I mean, I assume, oh God, there, it is really hard to even make any statements. <laughs> yeah. um, well, because we're still, we're still figuring it out. But, the, but, but, but I think one can, so a working hypothesis would be that you do not want to get that waking activity because it is not conducive to developing the brain. And it might you. actually okay. make, things a lot, make things a lot worse. Because it's so noisy, it could confuse the whole system. It could make it a lot more difficult to, to, to get the system wired up to the point where you get to an age where all of a sudden it is, now I'm ready for wake activity. I'm ready, ready to start learning from what I'm doing while I'm awake. But before that, that learning process seems to be somewhat impeded. So interesting. So when we're just sitting there looking at our little babies now, they're not in their third trimester in utero. They're out in the world and they're newborns and they're twitching. Can we map that? Can we think about that? and think about what that means for how human brains are trying to adapt and learn and develop? Or is that past kind of what you would see in the rat pups? 
with the, the appropriate amount of, of caution because the work is just really beginning. Again, we know very little about how all of this stuff plays out in, in human infants after birth or before birth, for that matter. We have some similarities. There's some work that's been done that shows that what we know about rats is mostly being seen in what we in, in humans. So there's a lot of overlap on the at the level of the brain. Mm-hmm. But but what happens, you know, twitching stays around for a long time. And so we've recorded our first study with humans was looking from two weeks of age till seven months of age at the relationship between twitches and brain activity and, and so on, you know, during sleep. And you know, the twitches continue at a very high rate. They we record about 10, 10 twitches per minute just of the limbs for every minute of active sleep, of uh, every minute of REM sleep. So active sleep and REM sleep are just interchangeable words. But so, so that's quite a lot, you know, 10 per minute. And, uh, and then we also found that the structure of the twitches, how the twitches were organized in different parts, the arms, the legs, how, it, how it's structured changes across those ages. What we cannot do is look very easily beneath the surface of the brain. Right. So when we, when we record EEG activity, which we do, you're limited in what you can see with that technique. It's just not, it's just not that great for the level of information we want to get to really understand what's going on. So we have to go back and forth between what we learn from our animals and what we learn from our humans to try to build the story. So what's next for this story? Well, for us, I mean, oh, there was one other thing before I get to that that I'd like to say that is kind of important. Oh, please. Of, yeah, yeah, sorry, I forgot. But the, 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 the other thing that's really interesting about human infants, you know, we attribute so much to them when we're young. And of course, you know, for parents, every movement, every smile, every, everything that they do is, is sort of looked at in the, the most, how do I put it, romantic of ways, right? Uh-huh. But, but so much, so much what's going on in a human baby is, a human infant at birth and through the first half year at least is really not being it's not a it's not actually being driven by the cortical activity it's actually still very much in the brainstem and so that gives us an important clue about what's the amount of development of the brain that's still going on uh, because there's very little activity that can be driven by a developing cortex in a, in a newborn infant it's not widely talked about uh, oddly enough in the developmental psychology yeah. literature wow uh, but it, it's important to realize that because, because they're, babies are very much being, the, all these incredible behaviors that you see are likely not coming from a lot of organized activity in the, in the uppermost parts of the brain. Um, so that's kind of important. As to where yeah. we're going, as to where we're going with this, you know, it's, uh, we're starting to develop a collaboration. We have a wonderful children's hospital at the University of Iowa. And, uh, and with a great uh, neonatal intensive care unit, and we're developing a project to start doing what we've been doing in, in full-term infants, and now we're going to push it to, uh, to premature infants, extremely premature infants. And the University of Iowa has one of the highest, most successful NICUs for, um, for survival for extremely premature infants, and so we'll be able to follow kids for, wow. uh, you know, very early on through a much later period and, and hopefully be able to to, to learn some new things because, you know, prematurity is, is associated with a lot of risk. And so uh, trying to understand the relationship between sleep and that risk, I think would be ultimately pretty important. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I have one last question for you, which is totally, I mean, it is related to sleep, but completely off topic. And so you may just say like, please do not 
put this on the podcast, which is totally fine. It's more just, (laughs) I want your opinion. Um, Uh Can you just speak to the neurobiological mechanisms at play when it comes to sleep training behaviors of what we see certainly in the United States for parents? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to answer it with rats again, but I'm going to get back to the humans. Okay. So when a, when any newborn infant, you know, and I've, I've seen a bunch of different, different ones, they all are similar. They're, like I said, they're cycling very fast between sleep and wake, but they don't show any differences across the day night cycle that are at all what you'd expect. I mean, they're very small differences, if at all. And the reason for that is because the, the oscillating mechanism, the, the mechanism that turns a baby that makes a baby or an infant go become awake or go to sleep and go back and forth. It's kind of like a, a seesaw or a teeter totter, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's random. I mean, it actually is statistically a random process. And so it's going back and forth, up and down, up and down, these various durations. And then over time, over development, you start to get a little bit more, in the case of a nocturnal species like a rat, you'll start to get a little bit more uh, wakefulness at night and a little bit more, less wakefulness during the day and vice versa for sleep. Mm-hmm. So you see the same exact thing in humans, but it just happens over a different time scale. So in rats, we see it from the birth to about 15 days of age. They go from um, an oscillator that is just going back and forth randomly to one that is now being structured by the day-night cycle. So that happens in two weeks in rats. And in humans, it takes about three to four months. Now, why? What is it that's causing the circadian, you know, those day-night shifts to have an mm. effect on sleep? And it's because the part of the brain, which is, again, in the brain stem, which is generating most of these oscillations, is not yet physically connected with the so-called master clock, which is getting information about day and night. So the part of the brain that is, that is affected by day-night cycles is not getting to the part of the brain that's regulating your sleep-wake cycles. Right. Okay? And so prior to that, there's nothing, I believe, that anybody can do to change the fact that the baby is just going to cycle back and forth and not sleep through the night because, and I forgot to mention, but this is important, over the same period, the bouts of sleep and the bouts of wake are getting longer and longer and longer, okay? So, so you have the consolidation of the sleep and wake bouts, which is one process, and then you have the integration with the day-night cycle, which is a second process, and both of those things have to happen before you can have a baby sleeping through the night. And right. Right. So maybe you could push it around with a little bit of external influence of a parent. Maybe you can, you know, make it happen. But until those connections are made, I don't think there's anything that can be done about that. So to simplify it, to grossly simplify it, (laughs) you basically, um, what you're saying is you need to give babies brains the first four months to get to a point where they're even ready to have your external influence impact their sleep habits. So you yes. wouldn't you wouldn't want to try to, you know, they're they're getting their day and night sleep organized, they're figuring out stretching out amounts of sleep, everything is happening, but their brains are not going to be ready for anybody to sleep train them before all of those things get to a point where they've grown and that happens typically by around 4 months. Is that yeah, there's individual variability. Of you know, course, so, of course. Of course, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much my story and I'm sticking to that. Uh, now. <laughs> no, that, that, that seems like a good story to stick to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think guiding, letting the brain guide us a little bit is pretty important. Um, yeah. So that's really well, I helpful. It's, 
it seems important too, also because, I mean, a lot of parents are anxious about these things. And so it might be helpful, I think, to know that sometimes, you know, you just have limited power to make all these developmental changes happen. Some things have to happen on their own time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they can take a little bit of time. Those That's also that very lengthy period of time, which is short to anybody else in the world, except for those parents in the in those, you know, 16 weeks or 12 to 16 weeks or whatever that variability is, um, feels like a really long time. So it, it does feel good to know, like there's, you know, sometimes you just need to know in advance, okay, this isn't going to be a time that I can really control that so much. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and I am wishing you health and, you know, I don't even know what to say. It's so crazy right now. Yeah, we all need a little bit of luck here, but uh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And now here are a couple of listener questions on infant sleep. So the first question is, how can I get my child to nap during the day? And I'm not sure how old this child is, but here's my brief overview for infant naps. In the first three to four months, really up to 16 weeks, babies need to be given the opportunity to sleep every one and a half to two hours of wakefulness. So after they've been awake for an hour and a half to two hours, wrap them up in that swaddle, put them on their backs and help them go to sleep. When they've gotten to four months, parent influence can start to come into play. And so you can look at the clock and start to schedule naps a little bit flexibly, give or take 20 or 30 minutes on either side. But you might just say you're going to pick that they're going to take a nap at 9 a.m. and again at 1 p.m. and again at 3.30 p.m. So they'll get three naps a day. And what you'd want to do is get them used to going down for naps, falling asleep, ideally without you holding them. Because when you hold them to fall asleep, if they wake up, they don't know how to fall back asleep. And an added benefit is that if you can get day naps and falling asleep for bedtime down without falling asleep in your arms, then you often can bypass having to worry about sleep training or any crying in the middle of the night. So in the daytime, practicing for naps can be very helpful because it's just a time when you're not as exhausted. And the last thing I'll say about naps is that it is not a restorative nap if it is under 50 minutes. That's five zero minutes. So you really want to stretch out those naps so that they can last at least 50 minutes. On the other side of it, if they're lasting for more than three hours, make a little noise, open the door, use the vacuum, bang some pots and pans because you do want your baby to have their longest stretch of sleep at night and a nap longer than three hours might interfere with night sleep. Okay, let's do one more infant sleep question. Here's another question about infant sleep. My baby is waking up earlier. I'm putting my baby to bed at 10 p.m. and she gets up at 5 a.m. Is there any way to stretch this time out? So... Here's my brief answer with the assumption that your baby is past infant feeding time. So if you're not doing middle of the night feedings and you're talking, or even if you are, frankly, you still can have sleep happen in a kind of 12 hour increments. 
what is very counterintuitive is that, that the earlier you put your baby to bed, usually the later the wake up time, because they basically have a fairly natural time that they wake up. But if you get them to bed earlier, they're going to get more sleep either way. And ideally, they'll sleep later in the morning as well. So instead of a 10 p.m. bedtime, you really want to push it way earlier, like between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. And truly with young young children, with young babies, closer to 6 p.m. is more likely to get you a later wake-up time. And I know it's counterintuitive, but just give it a try. When you give something about five days, you give your baby an opportunity to see if this is something they can adjust to and if it helps. After that, you can play around. One good gauge on whether or not it's a good bedtime for your baby is do they fall asleep within about 20 to 25 minutes? If they do, they were really tired and it's a good time. If it takes them a really long time or it takes them two seconds, then you want to tweak the bedtime a little bit. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, please don't hesitate to rate, subscribe, and write a review. And I'll see you next week.